Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. The countdown to Christmas continues. We are now just two weeks away. So, how are you feeling? Well, I know you're not anxious because we dealt with that last week. So, you've set that aside and you're no longer anxious about Christmas. And again, I can't really speak for everyone, but I'm going to try. So, it's two weeks from Christmas and I'm busy. I think most people would agree that the Christmas season is one of, if not the busiest time of year. That's why we continually ask each other the question, are you ready for Christmas? Because we know that there is a lot to get ready for. We have presents to buy, parties to attend, desserts to bake or buy, people to see. Some of us have travel plans that need to be finalized, maybe even some last-minute decorations to install, and that's just part of the list. It is not uncommon during this busy season of Christmas to be so busy that we really can't even enjoy what we're doing. So much so that when it's finally all over with in a few weeks, we breathe a big sigh of relief because we have survived another busy holiday season. But surely this shouldn't be a time of year that we try to survive. This should be a time of year that we enjoy. And so I don't want us to rush through the season just so we can get through it, which is why I tend every year, at least at some point, to try to remind us of what the true meaning of Christmas is all about and how we need to make sure that we don't miss that true meaning in the midst of all of the other obligations that we tend to have on our schedules. And that's what I intend to do this morning. Though you do not need my permission, and I understand that, I'm going to offer my permission anyway. Permission for you to say no to some things this season. To admit to yourself that you don't have to do everything that everyone asks you to do. So that we can say no to some things, and we can say yes to what really matters. I've told you several times, probably too many times, that I like the story of Jesus coming to visit the home of his friends, Mary and Martha. And when he gets there, Martha is busy serving. She has all kinds of things to do, not only in preparation for Jesus' arrival, but to minister to him once he's there. And so she is busy while her sister Mary is not. Mary is not involved with any of these things, so much so that Martha gets mad. And Martha comes to Jesus and she says to him, will you tell my sister to get up and help me? I've got all this stuff to do and she's not doing anything at all. And Jesus's response to Martha combines the two things that we've talked about both last week and this week. He said this to Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. See, she was anxious, that's last week. And she had a lot of things going on. That is, she was busy. 
But then he says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So what was the good portion that Mary had chosen that Jesus says this one thing will not be taken away from her? Well, earlier in the story, we are told that while Martha was busy serving, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's what we need this Christmas. That's really what we need throughout the year. We can't rush through the celebration of our Lord's birth without having time to enjoy his presence. So our text this morning is from the Psalms. It is Psalm 46. It is a psalm that I go to a lot at funerals. In other words, I read this a lot during funerals. But in the process of preparing for this series, I discovered that I've never actually preached from Psalm 46. And so I'm going to remedy that this morning by looking at all 11 verses of this psalm. Psalm 46 in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now you may have noticed that I did not read three words. Actually, it's one word that I didn't read three times. It's the word Salah, and it's found at the end of verses 3, 7, and 11, which means this is divided up into three stanzas. This psalm or song is divided up into three stanzas, which means we will have three points. This was a psalm that was sung, as most of them were. We don't know exactly what the word Salah means, but evidently it is some sort of musical note. The heading of the psalm tells us that it's a psalm from the sons of Korah. These were the Levites who were descendants of Kohath, who was the father of Korah. And they evidently produced and performed music in the tabernacle while they were in the wilderness and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. We do not know the exact setting of this particular psalm. Most scholars believe that it was likely written following the destruction of King Sennacherib and the Assyrian army during the reign of Hezekiah. 
you want to know more about that, you can find that story in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. I'll give you the very brief rundown of that. Sennacherib's army commander was outside the city of Jerusalem. They were besieging the city, and he was taunting the residents of Jerusalem, urging them to surrender, saying things like, none of the other gods of any of the other cities have been able to withstand the Assyrian army, and therefore, by implication, you will not be able to either. So you might as well surrender. Hezekiah then goes to the temple, and he pours out his heart in prayer to God, and God answers Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, telling Hezekiah that God would defend the city and that Sennacherib would leave and return to Nineveh. That night, God sent an angel, killing 185,000 of the Assyrian army. And when the remainder of the army arose the next morning and saw the devastation around them, they packed up and left and went back to Nineveh just as God had said. Now, whether this is the exact situation that prompted this psalm or not, clearly the original context is a context of battle and victory. And while that is not our context, we do want to keep that in mind as we take this psalm and apply it to the busy time that we experience at Christmas. And so in the first stanza, we learned this truth. Fear not, God is our refuge. Now, as you can see, that comes directly from verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Verse 2, therefore, we will not fear. This psalm is meant to be a section of Scripture that brings stability in the midst of instability. And clearly, we have seen this not only as we read it, but we will see it as we think about it. That's why I often read this at funerals, as I've said, in the unstable times of a death of a loved one. But certainly, the instability in our lives goes well beyond those few moments when we grieve the passing of someone we love. It's all around our world today. Economic uncertainty, violence every time we turn around, political division and moral revolutions, natural disasters, and the list goes on and on. I mean, I was in Nashville Friday night. Tracy and I went over there so that we could visit one of our members who was in the hospital at Vanderbilt. And so we spent the night there in a hotel near downtown. And at 3 a.m., both of our phones went off at the same time with a warning that there was a tornado in the area. Now, we were on the ninth floor of a 10-story building, which is not very comfortable at that time. And so we spent the next hour watching the radar on our phones, watching the local news channel to see if we were in the direct line of the approaching tornado, wondering whether we should go downstairs for safety. It was an hour of instability. But of course, many people face that in far more difficult and much longer situations. As I visit the residences of our homebound members this time of year, there is a frequent conversation that they want to talk about. They often bring up our nation and the direction in which our nation is headed, oftentimes with words like these, I'm fearful about what's going to become of our country. And then they will sometimes add, and my fear is not so much for me, but it, it is for my children and my grandchildren. 
Now, you can understand why they have these fears. They have seen so much change, much of that change, things that they would never have expected to experience nor see. In fact, I was visiting with one of them this week. And you know that this past week was the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And this particular woman was sharing with me her remembrances of that day. She was seven or eight years old when that event happened. And she was telling me all about what she remembered on that particular day. I also frequently asked them what they like to watch on TV, as I did another lady this week. And she told me that she used to watch a lot of TV until another member of our church who stays in constant contact with her told her to quit watching so much TV, to turn the TV off because God is in control. You see, she was watching the news and she was getting fearful. Now, I'm not here to tell you whether or not you should or should not watch TV. But this psalm does remind us that we don't have any reason to fear, whether you're watching the news or not. Verse 2 is very clear. There is no reason to fear, regardless of the turmoil that is going on around us. I mean, just look at the pictures presented here. It is a catastrophic type of picture that is given here. The earth melting away, the mountains falling into the sea. And yet here is that statement that follows that. Therefore, we will not fear. There is no reason for us to be afraid. You say, well, how can that be possible? Because God is our refuge and strength. A refuge is a place to hide from the troubles of the world. A strong shelter shielding us from danger. Now, when you think of a refuge, you might think of a particular place in your home or your home in general. But maybe there's a particular place in your home where you like to go to get away from everything. Maybe it's your home office. You do some work there from time to time, but sometimes it's just a refuge where you go and read a book or watch television. Maybe you have one of those man caves that are popular these days or a she shed out back. I don't know what you have, but you've got a place where you go to where you can set aside all the troubles of life a hiding place. Well, the psalmist says that our refuge is not some location in our home, but our ultimate refuge is our relationship with God. It is in Him and in Him alone that we find the strength to face whatever challenges come our way. It is in Him that we find Him to be strong, even while we are weak. Now, we'll talk about more of that in just a moment. So even if everything around you is in a state of change, changes that many of us never saw coming in our lifetime, God is a God who does not change, and therefore he can be our helper through any and all circumstances. That is, as long as we turn to him for our refuge. If you continue to think that your refuge is found in your own ability, or in the government, or in your traditions, or and a hundred other things you might add to the list, you will continue to fear the future. But it is only as we consistently and consciously see God as our place of refuge that we can watch the news or not watch the news, it doesn't really matter, and still have no fear either way. Because God is our refuge, the psalmist tells us there is no reason to fear. The second stanza gives us this point. Faint not, God is our strength. There is some overlap here, but 
In the first stanza, we don't have to fear because God is our refuge. In the second stanza, we can keep on going. We're not going to give up. We're going to faint not because God is our strength. Another thing I hear people say repeatedly, and I must admit I say it myself, is the words, I'm tired. And by that, they do not mean primarily that they are physically exhausted from a workout or for a long, from a long day at work. Instead, they just mean that they are emotionally or spiritually tired. Tired of the struggles of life, tired of the battles we face, tired of the problems that come our way. Life has beaten them down to the point that they no longer seem to have any energy to face things anymore, which means they have given up. Now, sometimes when people give up, they take their own lives. Other times, they simply continue to exist, but they do so without any joy or without any excitement for living, which, of course, is not the way to live and certainly not what we want during this time of Christmas. But in this second stanza, the scene changes dramatically. Now we've been transported to a scenic river. Like all of those peaceful streams that flow through our beautiful Smoky Mountains. In fact, that might be one of your places of refuge. You might like to go to the mountains and sit or hike by a stream and listen to the voice of that stream and the sounds of the waters and it is a It's a place of peace and refuge for you. But in our scene, we are in the city of God, which historically would mean the city of Jerusalem, which means the river would be the stream of Siloam because that's the only natural supply of water in Jerusalem. But for us, this picture points us forward, not to the Jerusalem of the past, nor even the Jerusalem of the present, but the Jerusalem that is to come. And these peaceful waters contrast so strikingly with the first stanza where the the waters are roaring and foaming. But now we have a scenic picture of peace. They remind us that we can find refreshment in the strength of God so that we do not faint or lose heart. Countless times in the New Testament, we are encouraged to be encouraged. We are encouraged to not give up to not faint, but to keep on going steadfastly in the work of the Lord. And we can do that only as we find our strength in him. You say, but where do you find strength in this second stanza? I see it in the first verse. God is our refuge and strength. That's easy. But where do you find strength in this second stanza, verses 4 through 7? Well, first I see it in verse 5 where it says of that holy city that God is in the midst of her, and then what's the next phrase? Because God is there, she shall not be moved. Again, the world may be crumbling around that city. The Assyrian army might be camped outside of it, ready to conquer and destroy it. But God is in the midst, and because of that, he says, it will not be moved. And so God is with us. We are not physically in the new Jerusalem. We are not physically in the city, but we are in the presence of God, and more on that in just a moment. So we see it in verse 5 where it says, she shall not be moved because God is her strength. We also see it in verse 7 where God is our fortress, which in my Bible, that's the heading of my psalm. 
Again, those titles are not inspired. It's the work of others who are trying to help us understand them better. So it might say at the top of your psalm, God is our fortress like it does in mine. Telling us that at least the one who wrote that title thought that this was the most important point of this particular psalm. A fortress speaks of strength. The impenetrable, impenetrable nature of the city. That is, it cannot be conquered. Again, remember that this is likely written in the context of battle with Hezekiah wondering if the Assyrian army would penetrate and destroy the city. And they would have had God not been their fortress. It's not the Jerusalem walls that saved the city. It is God as their strength and God as their fortress that was protecting them. Of course, we know at other times, God allowed foreign armies to penetrate and destroy the city multiple times because God brought judgment upon the people and the city for betraying him and straying from him. But here in this case, he saves them. Now, I didn't tell you when we began that this is a psalm of triumph, a psalm of Zion. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that the psalms are divided up into six or seven different categories depending on who's doing the categorization. And one of those categories is a psalm of triumph or a psalm of Zion, meaning that it's, a, it's about Jerusalem, it's about worship in the city, and it's a psalm that would have been sung as they were gathering to worship in the temple. As they were coming to worship, they would have sung this psalm. But the psalm has also been traditionally known by another name, one that you will not find in the heading of your Bible. It is sometimes known as Martin Luther's psalm. Because this is a psalm that he often found comfort in. And this is the psalm from which he wrote his most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He faced difficulties in his life, days throughout much of his ministry, where he was contending for the faith. And in so doing, he turned to this psalm for comfort and strength. It is said that he would often say to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, he would say, come, Philip. Let us sing the 46th Psalm. And like I said, from it, he wrote his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, which begins, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. He goes on in that great hymn to talk about the assurance we have of God's victory and the defeat of the enemy and the abiding truth of God and his kingdom. One scholar of Luther said, Few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord in the midst of very real dangers as strongly as does this one. Now, if I might radically change the illustration from Martin Luther to a much more contemporary example from the television show Seinfeld. That's about as far away from Martin Luther as you can get. George Costanza's father is having an issue with anger. And he's having high blood pressure as a result of his constant anger. And so he goes to see a doctor about it. And the doctor gives him some self-help tapes. And on these self-help tapes, there is a relaxation tip. And the relaxation tip is that anytime he feels his anger and thus his blood pressure rising, he is simply supposed to say, serenity now. But if you know anything about George's father, he yells everything. So throughout this episode, he's constantly yelling, serenity now. 
And everybody else on the show, or at least several other characters, including Kramer, try the technique as well, but ultimately it doesn't work for anyone. Because no matter the words you might repeat, they're not going to help you in the midst of troubles. They're not going to solve your problems. But turning to God and finding rest in His strength certainly can. Repeating some mantra isn't going to do the trick. But turning to God and finding Him to be your strength will. And again, that's easier said than done. It's going to take constant and consistent application and faith in the promises of God. But we have those promises right here and in many other places. So do not faint. Don't quit. Find your strength in God. And then we come to the third stanza. And this is the stanza for which, or the reason for which I really did select this psalm. The third truth in our busy lives at Christmas, be still, God is with us. This stanza begins with an invitation to consider the work of God so that we can see all that he's done throughout creation. The desolations and the ceasings of war refer to the immediate context. It's not a promise that we will not see wars in our own lifetime as we are painfully well aware. But it is in the aftermath of God ceasing the war from which this psalm was written. And it speaks of God as the conqueror who has won the battle for them. This is not a negotiated peace between two armies who've decided to lay down their arms. This is God who has conquered the enemy and has imposed peace on the others. As a result, it's a reminder that though our world, our nation, and yes, even our lives sometimes seem to be spinning out of control, this is simply not the case. God is in control. Or to use the theological terms, God is sovereign. And therefore, we do not need to panic. We need to be still and recognize His control. You know, this just might be the biggest thing you need this Christmas. This might be the one item that needs to be on top of your list above all of those other presents you're asking people to buy for you. Instead of being busy and frantic, you need to be quiet. You need to still your heart and your mind and remember who God is. Other translations in verse 10, rather than saying be still, some translations say cease striving. Again, referring to the cessation of war. The battle has been won. It is over. God has won and is victorious. But don't just put it on your wish list. Make it happen. Make it happen by saying no to all the busyness of life. Make it happen by saying no to some things this Christmas season and saying yes to being in the presence of God. You do not have to be a Martha anxious and busy about so many things you need to be a mary sitting at the feet of jesus and listening to his teaching and that's not being lazy that's not being irresponsible you say you just don't know what i have to do no i don't but it's not being lazy to say no to some things so that you can say yes to the presence of god that's what jesus said was the one thing needed That's what Jesus said Mary was doing, and it was not going to be taken away from her. And you will find that when you do that, he will strengthen you to do the other things that are needed. The victorious God is with us, 
Both verses 7 and 11 make this clear. The God of Jacob is with us. He has not left us nor abandoned us, as we saw last week. He knows what is going on in our lives, and he has promised his presence to be with us in the midst of all of it forever. And what a comforting thought to know that God is always with us. God with us. I mean, isn't that the message and meaning of Christmas? And if that is the message and meaning of Christmas, shouldn't it be the focal point of our celebration? In Matthew's version of the birth of Christ, the angel appears to Joseph telling him that the baby is going to be born uh, from Mary, but it's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he tells Joseph, you're going to name this baby Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. He came that we might be saved. Christmas is a time to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ. But then Matthew adds this, that it is a fulfillment of Scripture, specifically of the Old Testament Scripture in Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we sing songs at Christmas about Emmanuel. But what does that word mean? What does that name mean? Matthew goes on to tell us in his account, you're going to call his name Emmanuel. And then he has in parenthesis, which means God with us. That's the very message that we've seen in this psalm this morning. And this is the message of Christmas that should settle our anxiety and our busy lives. God became man. He came to be with us so that we could be saved and we wouldn't be alone. He came to save us from our sins so that Christmas is not about all the busyness that we often associate with us. But Christmas is about the salvation that God has given us and the peace with God that results from it. Now, I know you feel pressured to finish everything and make, your family, make sure your family enjoys the perfect Christmas. But I want to take that burden off of you this morning. You're never going to provide the perfect Christmas because the perfect Christmas has already been provided. And not by you. The perfect Christmas has already been provided for you by God. So you don't have to have the burden of all this busyness. Instead, you can rest in the perfect Christmas that God in Christ has already provided. And this Christmas, you can enjoy the presence of God rather than thinking you have to prepare the perfect Christmas for everyone else. After all, it's really not about you. It's really not about your family. It's really not about me. It's about God becoming man so that we might be saved. God with us. Someone recently gave me a book by Bill Haslam, the former two-term mayor of Knoxville and two-term governor of Tennessee. It's an interesting book with a mix of faith and politics and a few good stories thrown in. And so I want to share one of those stories with you. Bill Haslam and his wife were traveling to a country in Asia while he was governor of Tennessee, he was on a recruiting visit for business for the state of Tennessee. 
And the plane was several hours late when they finally landed. And so they were in a hurry to get to their scheduled meeting with some manufacturing company that they were trying to entice to bring business to our state. Now, as a governor, when you fly from one state to another, you are always greeted on the ground by a state trooper from the state in which you just landed, and they escort you to wherever you're going. But that does not apply to international travel. And so the governor and his wife were doing the very same things we do when we fly somewhere. And when we are late, they are hurriedly getting their things and they are trying their best to get off the plane as quickly as possible to make their meeting. And while they were doing this, Haslam's wife looked out the window of the plane and turned to Bill and said, what is going on out there? There's a band and there's soldiers waiting to welcome us. And as they exited the plane, the band started playing and the soldiers came to attention with a salute. When they got to the bottom of the steps, the, someone handed Chrissy, that is Bill Haslam's wife, a large bouquet of roses, so large that she later told Bill, these are more roses than you've ever given me collectively in our whole marriage. And then they were put into a limousine where they didn't have to go through customs and they were driven off to get to their meeting. Now, knowing that this was not customary on international trips, Bill Haslam leaned over to his host in the limousine and asked, can you tell me what in the world that was all about? And the host said, do you really want to know? And Bill said, yeah, I really want to know the truth about what that was that we just experienced. And so the host said, okay, I'll tell you. It's not about you. We are hosting world leaders for the G20 summit in a month, and we needed the practice. <laughs> I want you to know at Christmas, it's not about you. It's not about the perfect Christmas. It's about God becoming man so that we can be saved from our sins and live in the presence of God both now and forevermore. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for this time of year, while at the same time asking forgiveness for how busy we get. That sometimes we shut you out of the very celebration that we have going on, and we forget what the reason for all of this is. It's because you entered humanity as a man living a sinless life and dying a substitutionary death and rising victoriously so that we might be saved from our sins and enjoy your presence forever. Emmanuel, God with us, may we be still this Christmas and know that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond. Mm -hmm.